I encourage women, like if they're able to naturally cycle, to do it and to produce those sex hormones. Um, and this is particularly true for younger women, just because um, you know our brain is still developing um, up until the time that we're in our early twenties, um, and our HPG axis, which is the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis, which is just the communication pathway between our brain and our ovaries is still maturing um, during this time up until we're in our, you know, until we're about 20. And suppressing that and shutting it all down with hormonal birth control um, prevents that development from going on. Welcome to Fent Power Health, Georgie here. In today's episode, I interviewed Dr. Sarah Hill, who is the author of This Is Your Brain on Birth Control, and we are uncovering the science behind birth control and how it may shape our lives. Now, we couldn't help but get a little bit nerdy on the science up front so that you have proper background on the potential impacts. And we do focus on hormonal birth control, but we can't escape the fact that all birth control has had a change in our lives, especially giving us the opportunity to excel in the world because we are able to make choices now, like going back to school, which now women outnumber men. We also discussed the impact of the -the over-the-counter birth control that recently was approved by the FDA, as well as the effects of the Roe v. Wade overturn. Now, I do want to share one quick thing that we didn't get to in the episode because we did have so many things to discuss. Just wanted you to consider this quote as you listen to the episode. Women, just by virtue of being the choosier sex, have the ability to inspire men to do amazing things. And it shouldn't spoil it for us that these things are ultimately motivated by sex. And this is proven in the research. In one of the studies she cited, men who believed that women's standards were high outperformed those who believed that women's standards were low. So when you combine this with the fact that men are now achieving less than ever before in history, it creates a situation in which women are finding that they have to cut some pretty crappy deals if they want to get married. I'm definitely curious on your thoughts about that quote, but let's dive into the episode because I do think it's such an important conversation and hopefully some of this introduction will help give you some food for thought as you listen. So enjoy and definitely share with me your thoughts. Email me at info at fempower-health.com. Uh, Sarah, it's so nice to have you on the Fem Power Health podcast. I've been following you for quite a long time with your amazing book. And so before we dive into talking about birth control, because this is such a great time in the world to be revisiting this topic, why don't you give us your introduction and then we can dive right in. Sure. So I am uh, Sarah Hill. I'm a psychology professor and a researcher. Um, and I've spent most of my career studying women's health and hormones and sexual behavior. Tell us a bit about your book as well. Yeah, I guess the thing I left off my uh, intro was the most relevant piece to our conversation, <laughs> and that is also that I'm the author of uh, This Is Your Brain on Birth Control, um, which was a, a project that began, um, you know, I've, I've been working as a, as a research psychologist for a number of years now, over a decade, Um, And uh, this book was actually the result of uh, me as a scientist who'd been studying women and women's psychology um, for a really long time, um, going off of hormonal birth control. 
Um, and so I hadn't really had that much attention paid specifically to that issue, like the way that the birth control pill uh, affects the brain. And then when I went off of it, I felt so fundamentally different um, that I began to sort of pivot my research to begin to um, really explore, like, what do we know and, and what do we don't know um, yet about uh, the effects of hormonal birth control on the brain. And so um, I spent a number of years researching everything that is written in the book, um, and that is what we're going to be chatting about today. I saw you on The Business of Birth Control, and it was great because I saw many previous podcast guests in that documentary. And um, again, even since that documentary was published, so much has changed in the world. I, I had shared with you some of the questions um, like about Roe v. Wade, the over-the-counter birth control pill and all that, and I still want to discuss it, but I still think it's important to talk about the research in your book because I still feel like that data is so important to have the rest of the conversation. I thought I'd start with a couple of quotes in the book. So you said, as of this writing, and your book was, I think, 2018 published, is that correct? 2019. Um, as of this writing, the full extent to which the artificial hormones in birth control pill influence every other cell in the body that has hormone receptors for progesterone and estrogen, it isn't all that well understood. And we have been too far too cavalier with our hormones. And I can't help thinking that we would be a lot more careful with ourselves if we understood how we work and why we work that way. You need to know how your brain works. You need to know how your hormones influence your brain. And you need to know how all that changes on the pill. Those are, they're, yes. they're from two separate sections, but I felt they had to do with each other. So, you know, yeah. so I guess, what do we know today? And then we can dive into to like some specifics. So where do you feel like our knowledge is now based on the studies you published there and anything new that may have come up around, you know, and I know that's a very big question, but where do you want to start with, you know, these impacts that people don't really think about but need to know about with the pill. Right. Well, I think that the the really the important place to start is just in, you know, understanding um, the role of hormones in our brain. And, you know, it's like we tend to like with the birth control pill or anything, you know, really when we're talking about hormones, we tend to talk about hormones like there's something that are happening to us. Right. Like, oh, my hormones, you know, are doing this and my hormones are doing that. And um, or if we take hormonal birth control, we think about the effects that it has on our ovaries, you know, in terms of pregnancy protection. But we don't really spend um, any time thinking about the fact that, you know, our hormones, in addition to doing the things that they do in terms of regulating uh, the menstrual cycle, um, also play a really profound role in shaping our reality. Um, and the reason for this is that our brain has hormone receptors all over the place in it. Um, and, 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 and this makes a lot of sense evolutionarily because, you know, it's like we've inherited this brain um, that's wired for reproduction. And what that means is that it's going to be sensitive to our waxing and waning sex hormones. 
Um, and so we know from you know decades of research that uh, hormones affect you know the immune system. So when your, our hormones change, our immune system sort of shifts from a one type of a, a inflammatory state to another type of a state. We know that um, when our, our hormones change across the cycle, that you get changes in uh, sexual desire and sexual behavior. We know that the stress response changes. We know that our ability to learn and remember things changes. I mean, we just have hormone receptors all over the place in the brain. Um, and and they've, our brain has been designed this way intentionally to sort of shift our behavior in functional ways um, depending on whether or not conception is possible, which is what's going on in the follicular phase of the cycle, um, especially during the, what we call the periovulatory window, which is about five days prior to ovulation and then within 24 hours of ovulation. So this is usually days like 9 to 14 in the cycle. Um, and during this time, you know, it's like our brain and, and our behavior is all coordinated toward activities that promote sex um, because sex can lead to conception. And again, you know, we've inherited this brain that has been really good at reproduction. And then during the second phase of the cycle, when progesterone is the dominant uh, sex hormone, um, you know, that is a time when it's possible that a fertilized egg might be implanting itself into, the, into our uterine lining. Um, and so our body is doing a totally different set of activities. And instead of being motivated toward doing, you know, things like going out and attracting men and having sex, um, we're more motivated toward, you know, sort of hunkering down and, and increasing our calorie intake and doing other things to prepare for the possibility of pregnancy. Right? And so we have this brain that's super sensitive to fluctuating sex hormones. Um, and, and again, in ways that make absolute sense evolutionarily, um, but what that means is that when you change that profile of sex hormones by taking um, a hormonal contraceptive pill, um, in addition to causing all of the changes that we cause um, you know, to prevent ovulation so that way you don't uh, conceive, um, you're also affecting all those, uh, those hormone receptors in your brain that have been designed to be really sensitive to sex hormones. And what this means is that when we take hormonal birth control, um, we're changing women's brains, and that means that we're changing the way that women think and feel and experience the world. And it's just been within the last 15 years or so that researchers have really begun to ask that question specifically. And that is what, you know, who do women become when they go on hormonal birth control? How does it change the way that we experience the world um, relative to what we see in naturally cycling right. women? And so I spend the, the book really kind of going over some of those things. I love in the book that this is not, birth control is the worst thing ever, and I'm going to write this book, and I'm going to scare everyone. It is an incredibly balanced book. You're just presenting the research. You give, you know, you certainly share some of the horror stories that have happened, but it's not like a scare tactic. It's just this happened to this person, and you even show that that same exact prescription had a different effect on a different person and I think in the back you or I know you in the back you have a table of all the different types of birth controls and the makeup of each of those um, and so I, I really you know do appreciate that and the, the data is incredibly helpful but before we dive into the research I do want to just do a high level of types of birth control because you know there's hormonal non-hormonal we now have the over-the-counter you have FEXI, which is the on-demand birth control, which some argue may impact the vaginal microbiome, even though it's working in that way. So nothing is perfect. 
but I just want to clarify from all those different buckets how people should view this conversation. Is it solely hormonal birth control? And do we want to specify when some of the topics apply to the others? So I'd love to kind of clarify that. Right, really, um, you know, great question. And uh, so uh, generally when I'm talking about, and a lot of times I'll just as shorthand use the pill, um, but I'm talking specifically about hormonal birth control. And I do mean all forms of hormonal birth control. And so this means I could be talking about hormonal birth control pills. I could be talking about the hormonal birth control shot. I could be talking about the vaginal ring, subdermal implant, um, and even the hormonal IUD, although the research with that is super messy for reasons that we can talk about if you want to, but it'll get us a tiny bit into mm-hmm. the weeds. Um, but uh, all of the, the mechanism of action for all of these different types of birth control are the same. And um, the big sort of uh, action agent in each of these types of hormonal contraceptives is progestin, and that's a synthetic progesterone. Um, and so what, this, what these progestins do is they stimulate the progesterone receptors in the brain. And when these receptors are being stimulated, it um, prevents the, the brain from telling the ovaries to start producing, uh, to start maturing egg follicles. And so because the brain is not sending that message to the ovaries, that's why we don't ovulate. And so the primary mechanism of action in all hormonal birth control products is this progestin, because again, stimulating progesterone receptors in the brain um, prevents that communication between the brain and the ovaries that leads to, that ultimately leads to ovulation. Um, and so it doesn't really matter, you know, and, and it seems like, and I say it doesn't matter how it gets into our body, right? Like whether it's a patch or whether it's a shot, um, but, but it, it, it does and it doesn't. So on the whole, the effects are generally the same sort of across modalities. Um, but there are some differences. So just um, to give an example, when we look at depression risk, um, we tend to find that the risk of, um, of depression um, is greatest for types of uh, hormonal birth control that only contain a progestin. Um, and so for a combination hormonal birth control pill, for example, that contains both a progestin and synthetic estrogen, those have a lower risk of um, depression relative to the progestin-only products. Um, but on the whole, we see, you know, like we generally see that there's an elevated risk of depression and anxiety among users of hormonal birth control across the board. It's just that there are some sort of small differences based on the specific type of product. Progestin and progesterone. So we know that progesterone helps with our mood. Yet in this case, we're saying the progestin can have impacts on depression and anxiety. And I know um, Dr. Jerry Lynn Pryor and Dr. Lara Bryden specifically have lots of conversations with me about this. And I think Dr. Pryor actually corrected someone in a paper that was published who um, called it progesterone, (laughs) and it was not. So... Um, yes, help us um, with the data that you've seen around that, because I think sometimes people think they're the same and may misread it. But when I saw that in your book, I highlighted it and I'm like, we have to talk about this. Yeah, no, this is an important point. And, you know, there are some of these things where people get hung up on like, oh, you know, a, 
a period that you get on the birth control pill isn't a real period. And like, I don't know that that makes a big difference. You know, it's like, you're bleeding, you know, and, and it's like, whether you have an endometrial lining or whatever. But, but this is one of these like persnickety little differences that actually matters. Um, and it matters in a, in a really significant way. And that's because um, when your body is uh, metabolizing progesterone, which is this endogenous product that our body creates after an egg has been released, the egg follicle releases this um, hormone that has incredible um, like positive effects on, um, on our mental health. Um, and it, it increases neuroplasticity. Um, they've done really great studies looking at it as being therapeutic in the case of brain injury and in the case of things like PTSD. It's this really nice hormone um, and, and, and it promotes mental health in all of these ways because when it's being metabolized by the body, it releases um, a neurosteroid called allopregnanolone, which is a potent stimulator of GABA receptors in our brain. And GABA is um, our primary inhibitory neurotransmitter that our brain uses um, to kind of calm itself down. Right? So in, in the brain, we've got excitatory neurotransmitters, which make our brain start firing really rapidly. And then we have inhibitory neurotransmitters that kind of slow down the rate at which our neurons are firing. It kind of dials us down. Um, and uh, GABA is the primary inhibitory neurotransmitter that we have. Um, and when our GABA receptors are stimulated in the brain, it makes us feel calm, cool, collected, and, like, and relaxed. Um, it allows us to sort of regulate our emotional states and regulate our stress response. Um, and so because of this, you know, women who are naturally cycling and releasing progesterone and, you know, are regularly exposed to this really, you know, positive psychological effect of this uh, hormone, it, it, can be very, it can be a very positive thing. Progestins don't do the same thing. And uh, the reason for this is uh, progestins aren't actually synthesized from progesterone. Um, almost all progestins that are commercially available and that are being used in hormonal birth control are being synthesized from either testosterone or spirolectolone, which is a, um, which is a, a, a diuretic. And neither one of these things, when they're being metabolized in the body, leads to the release of allopregnanolone. And so what we see is that women who are users of hormonal birth control, they have substantially lower levels of allopregnanolone across the cycle relative to what's observed in, um, in naturally cycling women. And you know, we don't yet exactly know all of the effects that, you know, the downstream effects that this can have, but there's a lot of hints. Like when we look at, for example, um, the greater risk of developing anxiety and depressive disorders in hormonal birth control pill users, that's something that is consistent with the idea of having lower levels of allopregnanolone. Decreased resiliency to things like PTSD, um, which is also something that's beginning to sort of creep up in the literature as a potential um, correlate of hormonal birth control pill use. Um, this is also something that we might expect to see um, as a result of reduced levels of allopregnanolone. And so um, it's really important to distinguish between those two, these two things because allopregnanolone and, and, and progesterone is, is really a mental health superhero, and then progestins aren't. And not, not only are they not in terms of not providing those really nice neuroprotective um, sort of uh, calming effects on the brain that progesterone does, um, but also we know that they don't have great binding specificity 
um, in, in terms of only binding to progesterone receptors in the brain and other parts of the body. Um, so for example, the, um, the progestins that are synthesized from testosterone, we know that a number of them um, will also stimulate testosterone receptors. And so you're getting mixed messages from these, from these, you know, these artificial hormones. You're getting progesterone and you're also getting testosterone. And there's also um, evidence that some generations of uh, synthetic progestin, in addition to stimulating uh, progesterone receptors, will stimulate uh, cortisol receptors, which um, sends a stress signal to our brain. And so um, you know, th these obviously aren't a perfect match. Uh, for a progesterone, and, and it's these differences um, that are likely responsible for um, many of these uh, unintended effects of hormonal birth control that we see. So you also said that ovulation, not your period, is the main event of the menstrual cycle, and you had mentioned earlier in this conversation about what the hormonal birth control does to that. So one response I have heard people give to this ovulation, because I've heard people saying, you don't ever need to have your period, it doesn't really matter. I've heard people say, yes, you do. Ovulation is main event. Ovulation is the definition of health. And knowing what's happening is important. If you're on the pill, it can, it can hide and mask some issues that you may have. And then some have said, well, when you're pregnant, you don't ovulate, so clearly it's fine. So I've heard all these very interesting perspectives. And since you've done so much research, I would love to hear from a scientific perspective, your views on all of these different things I hear from various perspectives. Oh, well, let me just say that it's, it's a complicated answer. So I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna do my okay. best on this. And I'll just say that, um, yes, you know, ovulation in addition to being, you know, this, thing that we learned about in health class in terms of being the sort of first moment when we're sort of putting forth this opportunity to create life. Um, it's also how our body produces sex hormones. So when our, you know, egg follicles are being stimulated and um, we're getting ready to sort of choose a dominant follicle and then we, this egg begins to mature, all of that leads to the release of estrogen. Um, and estrogen is a hormone that makes most women feel really good. It's associated with increased energy levels. It's, it's associated with increased um, sexual desire. It's associated with increased resiliency to stress. It's just something that um, generally makes women feel pretty good. And then, of course, once the egg is released, that empty egg follicle starts um, releasing progesterone, which, again, we've talked about all these great mental health benefits that progesterone has. Um, and so when we inhibit ovulation, we're inhibiting the, this like naturally occurring waxing and waning of um, these two hormones, which is something that you know, we are built for. You know, we spent most of our evolutionary history um, naturally cycling and pregnant, um, and those are both high hormonal states. You know, so um, the ovulation, the ovulatory event itself is a high hormone event where you get this like big peak in estrogen that occurs right before ovulation. And then you get this, a second peak in estrogen and this big surge in progesterone in the second half of the cycle, right? And that's something that um, is sort of a, like a natural part of, um, you know, our, our history as a species. 
Um, but and so too is pregnancy because you know when throughout most of our evolutionary history we didn't have reliable birth control and women also spent a lot of time pregnant um, and being pregnant means that you're not ovulating but it's a high hormone event um, so like your levels of sex hormones both estrogen and progesterone are substantially higher when you're pregnant relative to when you're not pregnant um, and so like when we do take synthetic uh, hormones that, that suppress ovulation um, and just replace it with these relatively low levels of synthetic hormones, it actually creates this state that is actually quite different than what our sort of, you know, quote unquote, natural biological states would be. Um, and, you know, one thing I oftentimes um, have women ask me about is like whether the super low dose hormonal birth control pill is going to be better and more natural because it has really low levels of these synthetic hormones. And like on the one level, on the one level, when you look at the side effect profiles of that, that type of pill, it actually, it does look pretty good. I mean, in terms of it, women tend to feel less terrible on that than they do on some of um, some of the other formulations. Um, but that state is actually not, I mean, that's not a normal hormonal, hormonal state right. for women um, to have really low levels of sex hormone. Um, we are very hormonal creatures. Um, we release high levels of sex hormones across the cycle when we're naturally cycling. We release high levels of hormones when we're um, pregnant and lactating. Um, and that's, that's sort of what, what we're optimized for. And so when you take away all of those hormones, it can make, some, it can make women feel pretty funky and not quite like themselves. And it's because that's not quite, you know, what, what we were, or what we're used to biologically. So it sounds like it's still better to ovulate and have this norm because that, but it, we don't necessarily, so we don't necessarily have like scientific data to say that this is literally the worst thing ever because of all of these aspects. We more have data that seems to indicate this is not optimal. Is that a fair, yeah, yeah, and you know, and, and, and I'll say, um, you know, because I do, I, I do think it's really important to um, not scare exactly. women, exactly. Um, and and it, there's nothing, there's nothing, um, you know, going for most women, going on hormonal birth control is something that's completely mm -hmm. safe, right? And they don't need to, you know, worry about some terrible um, health outcome. Um, but that being said. Um, you know, it is not, you know, a normal hormonal state for women okay. to be in to have their sex hormones suppressed. Um, and so, yes, I think that um, a better way for most women, and I'm going to say most women because some women really feel so much better on the pill and they're so miserable when they're cycling that um, I think it's a godsend for them. Um, in, in addition to women who just need pregnancy protection and have no better choices. Um, but for, for women, you know, all else being equal, um, yeah, like we are wired for, um, for ovulation and for the waxing and waning of, of these sex hormones. And so, um, I encourage women, like if they're able to naturally cycle to do it and to produce those sex hormones. Um, and this is particularly true for younger women, just because, um, you know, our brain is still developing, um, up until the time that we're in our early twenties. Um, and our HPG axis, which is the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis, which is just the communication pathway between our brain and our ovaries, is still maturing um, during this time up until we're in our, you know, until we're about 20. 
um, and not in, in suppressing that and shutting it all down with hormonal birth control um, prevents that development from going on. Um, and, and nobody's really studying like what the long-term effects of that are, but I can't imagine that there aren't right. any. I would agree. And we also don't know what, you know, whether taking hormonal birth control before your brain is done developing, whether that affects brain development. Uh, but there's some evidence that seems to suggest that it might be linked with um, an increased risk of developing major depressive disorder across the lifetime, even after you discontinue it. And so I, you know, especially for young women, like if you're 19 or younger and can avoid being on hormonal birth control, then my, then I say absolutely yes. Like that's, that's a clear choice. Um, it's, it's when women, you know, um, get older and their brains are done developing that, um, that then I say, well, I, I still think that this is the best option, but you know, if you do go on hormonal birth control, um, if you go off of it, everything's going to return back to normal within a couple of months. Great clarification. So on to the fun with the studies. So I asked you, tell me which ones are your favorite. Yeah. So in terms of like what the pill does and like some of the things that really surprised me, um, by far the, the first one that just like absolutely struck me was um, the, the research that finds that being on hormonal birth control might impact who we're attracted to. Um, because I mean, what, you know, it's, it's like, what, you know, it's like the idea of like on a warning label on your birth, like may cause dizziness and insomnia and part influence partner choice. Um, but like when I, when you get into the literature, I mean, it makes absolute sense um, because there's been, so the, there's been research now for, it's, it's, it's almost going on three decades now, um, just linking uh, women's levels of estrogen across the cycle and then their preference for sort of sexy qualities in men. So things like um, having a masculine face and like a deep male voice and being socially dominant. And, uh, and, and so research finds that when women are at points in the cycle when estrogen is high, that they really kind of gravitate toward these sexy types of qualities. And then when they're in uh, the luteal phase of the cycle after ovulation has occurred and conception is no longer possible, then women are like more drawn toward like the good dad kinds of qualities, right? And again, you know, when we think about what these hormones are signaling, like conception, 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 women are like sexy, sexy, good genes. Um, but then when they're in the this other phase of the cycle, it's more like, oh, is he going to be a good dad? Like, is he going to provide? Um, and uh, so, you know, research has been showing this now for years that, that women have these changing sort of, um, and, it's, and it's not like these vast changes, just sort of nudges us a little bit one way or the other based on our hormonal states. And it was only very recently um, that researchers then asked the question, well, what happens when you're on the pill? And all that shut down and you never are in a state when estrogen is the dominant hormone and you're constantly being kept in this state of hormonal deja vu where you have synthetic progesterone or a progestin as the dominant hormone and then levels of estrogen being low. And so they ask, do these women, do women on the pill or on hormonal birth control, do they exhibit less of a preference for sexiness in their partners and do they more gravitate toward qualities that are associated with provisioning and being a good dad um and that's exactly what they yep. found and uh and 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 it's they've found it in different studies now we just uh did a study um that we're gonna we're uh gonna have out for review pretty soon 
um, where we looked at whether women chose their partners when they were on birth control or off birth control. And then like once they're off birth control, um, then looking at the frequency of sexual behavior within these relationships. And we find that women who chose their partners when they were on the pill have sex with their partners less um, than women who chose them when they were off the pill. Um, another one that I found like really, really provocative was, was the research on the stress response. Um, just because it was like, it shocked me into sort of reality of how big of a difference it is um, when you change women's sex hormones in this way. Um, and so what this research finds is uh, women who are using hormonal birth control, rather than having um, a cortisol response to stress like the rest of us do when we're feeling stressed out, um, that they have a blunted cortisol response to stress, meaning that their bodies aren't releasing the stress hormone cortisol, which on the one hand, you know, at first when you hear that, it's like, sweet, you know, like, that's great. I don't, yeah, I get out of, get out of jail free card and you don't have to go through all the messiness of feeling stressed, but that's not actually how it works. Um, even though cortisol gets a bad reputation just because, um, it, you know, in the context of chronic stress, cortisol is bad because constant exposure to cortisol is no good for anybody. Um, it'll cause your body to completely fall apart um, because essentially what cortisol does is it um, redistributes all of the body's energy away from all of the regular things that bodies do, like generate new cells and, you know, fuel the immune response in case we come into contact with pathogens and learn and remember things and it takes all of that energy and redirects it toward dealing with the stressor right and so if you have chronic exposure to cortisol your body falls apart because you're that's the only thing that you're doing is your body's all guns blazing toward the stressor but cortisol is actually very positive in a short-term context so like most people who don't experience chronic stress who just you know, live normal lives and then have big stressful things that happen, um, the release of cortisol is actually very positive and it's how our body helps to resolve stress. Um, it's how we cope with stress. It helps us learn and remember things um, that are associated with, you know, whatever the stressful event is. It helps direct our attention toward the source of the stressor. It dumps fat and sugar into our bloodstream so we can make a quick getaway if we need to. Um, so cortisol, you know, is, isn't really a bad guy. In the context of, of short-term stress, it's actually a good guy. It's how we deal with stress. Um, and generally, when people get stressed out, they release this hormone because it's really adaptive to do that. And the only people that we see who have this blunted cortisol response to stress tend to be people who have experienced chronic stress, like people who've had trauma, or people who've been in a warfare context and have PTSD. And the reason that they don't get a cortisol response to stress is their body has shut the stress response down completely just because of the overactivation of the stress response. And what we see in women who use hormonal birth control is that they respond to stress like somebody with PTSD or like somebody who experienced trauma. And they don't have this like dynamic change in cortisol in response to the stressor the way that other healthy functioning adults do. And this is something that's really alarming um, because again, cortisol, even though it gets kind of a bad reputation, it's how we regulate stress. Um, and, uh, and what we tend to see is that those who have a blunted cortisol response to stress aren't dealing with stress very well. And it's associated with all kinds of psychological problems, um, including things like anxiety, depression, 
It's associated with PTSD. It's associated with reduced resiliency to stress in general. Um, and so when I first learned that women who are using hormonal birth control had this blunted cortisol response, it was that, you know, the reason I found it so provocative is, I mean, one, I mean, that's just kind of provocative in its own right, but it really underscored the fact that the effects of this pill extend far beyond our right. ovaries. You know, it's just like the, the, the you know, because the sex stuff in some ways makes sense, right? It's like sex hormones, sex. Yeah, that makes sense. But um, when it first, you know, when I first learned that and it was like sex hormones, stress, um, that was when it sort of dawned on me, like, duh, of course, you know, sex hormones affect yep. everything in the body. And so the idea that it does, that it would affect the stress hormones shouldn't be surprising, um, but, it, but it was. And that was really what opened my eyes to the idea that there's probably a lot more to, to the birth control pill than meets the eye. Now, interestingly, I remember reading in the book that even with your first point about the relationships, it's not a black and white if you are on the pill when you meet your you know, spouse and then go off of it to try to have your children, that suddenly you're going to lose attraction. So it's not an always type of a thing, but it is an interesting trend. So I guess any thoughts around how someone should take that data? You know, I think taking it with a grain of salt may not be a, a fair way to describe it, but I honestly wouldn't even know how to describe it. Women are so different yeah. from one another, right? So like, like every woman has different numbers of hormone receptors. Um, they're differently sensitive to hormones. They metabolize hormones differently. I mean, there's just huge differences between individual women and how we respond to things. I um, mean, one of the examples I give in the book on this is, um, is with a particular type of hormonal birth control. And I think you were referring to this. I had a friend who went on it um, and she had a psychotic episode. You know, and it really threw, did a number on her. Um, I was on the same one. I loved it. It was great. You know, and so um, it was just two two people. And who would have known? Look, you'd never know it looking at either one of us that you know she'll respond in a great way, and she will not respond in a great way. Um, but uh, everybody metabolizes things differently, and so because of that, the way that we respond to it is different. And then you take that, and then you add to it the fact that there's like almost a hundred different formulations of hormonal birth control that are out there, meaning that there's like a hundred different hormonal messages that you get from an individual prescription and you get all this heterogeneity, right? And so we don't know like who's going to respond what way to what hormonal birth control. Um, and so what all of this research is that I present in the book is that here are some things that we know are associated with hormonal birth control pill use or hormonal birth control use, right? And these are things to be aware of that are a possibility, right? right? But not anything to be, because they, they usually aren't the majority case, right? It's not the majority case where, like, it's not, in the majority of cases, women do not choose a partner when they're on the pill and then go off it and think, oh my God, like, what, you know, what did I do? <laughs> what did I do? But some right. women do. You know, some women, even um, I've talked to women now who is like, it kind of nudged them out of their sec their primary sexual orientation where they were like a little bit bisexual and like all of a sudden they're incredibly heterosexual or they were a little bit 
a little bit gay, and then now they're to- they're totally bisexual, or you know, it nudges them this way, or this wow. way, that way. Um, and does that mean that most women are going to have that experience? No, it just means that hormones are absolutely messy. I mean, they just there are receptors for hormones all over the place. Hormones affect everything, ranging from our, our gender identity to our sexual orientation to our stress response to the way that we learn a memory. You know, da 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 da. I could go on and on and on. And uh, and so for some women, when you flip those switches by changing the hormones with the hormonal birth control that they're on, it'll nudge them, you know, sort of in and out of these um, different states. And, uh, and so it's useful to know about what's possible. So that way you can monitor yourself and then decide how you feel and whether you prefer the way that you feel when you're on it, if you prefer the way that you feel when you're off of it. And if you prefer the way that you feel when you're not on what you're currently taking, knowing that there's a hundred different formulations out there, if you feel like you need to be on hormonal birth control, the thing that I recommend in the book is go talk to your doctor and try something yep. different. Cause you got a lot of choices out there and you're probably not going to respond the same way to every single thing right. that you take. And so, um, you know, but, but, it, but it sucks because all of us, you know, as, as women, and, and it's this, this way in medicine across the board, I'm sure that you are as aware of this as anybody. Um, it's like, we're constantly being experimented right. on because nobody really studies us. And so, you know, it's like, well, this didn't work for me or I feel weird on this. And it's like, well, try this. Yeah. And, and it's like, nobody can tell you beforehand what, what's going to happen. And instead you have to be, you know, a, a white lab rat, essentially, you know, just being testing on yourself and seeing what's working and what's not working. And so I wrote this book to just let women know, like, here's what we know are, are some things that can happen. This is what science tells us. Um, you can be on the lookout for any of this stuff. And then, um, you know, then you can sort of proceed and make the best in, informed choices for your um, health. Because I, I, it's it's like you said, it's not like um, you know a certainty that somebody's going to respond in any given way, and and so you know again, it's it's not about alarming women or it's just about like here's what we know. Yep. Now exactly. you know, look after yourself, and um, you know, and then and then make whatever decision is right for you. Because I don't know what's right for right. you, but but you know what's exactly. right. Exactly, and I like the other tip that you have, which is when you start a new pill to let someone know someone that's close to you because I agree like when you know I remember when I was on fertility treatments I think people were like oh my god you're so stressed and you're this and that and I was like no I'm not no I'm not and so I agree like when you're in it you don't notice it but everyone around you does so I think that's a really um, great tip so I want to share one of my favorite studies and then let's dive into like what's happening these days so um Dr. Miller and his team of researchers wanted to explore whether men find women more desirable at high fertility, and they wanted to study this in a naturalistic setting. Um, and so, so this was the infamous strip club study where they went and they worked at, um, they went to a gentleman's club and they worked with all of the dancers who worked there. And uh, as it would, you would expect, some of them were on hormonal birth control and some of them were not. And they just simply had them keep a diary of their tip earnings um, every day that they were working a shift over the course of two months. So over the course of approximately two cycles, they wrote down um, when they got their period. So like they were asked, like, did you get your period today? Um, so that way they were able to track where they were in their cycle. Like, are they at a conceptive or high fertility phase in the cycle when conception's possible? Or are they outside that window? 
planned, they were able to look at that and then also the differences between naturally cycling women and then pill-taking women in terms of their tip earnings. Um, and they did this um, as a way to sort of naturally quantify um, men's interest in women based on cycle phase, based on hormones. And what they found, uh, and you know the dollar amount because <laughs> I don't remember it, um, but the naturally cycling women experienced a big surge in tip earnings that corresponded to their levels of estrogen across the cycle. And essentially what you see is that right near ovulation, so in what we call the periovulatory window, which is about that like five days prior to ovulation and then on the day of ovulation, that their tip earnings soared oh, yeah. and they did really well. Um, and then they started to fall when uh, estrogen levels fall in the cycle. Um, and so you get this like really big change. Um, with the pill takers who again, you know, their, their fertility is being suppressed and estrogen levels are kept really low. What you see is that they have relatively invariant levels of tip earnings. It doesn't have these dramatic swings like the, the naturally cycling women's do. And they don't end up earning as much money overall as the naturally cycling women because they're missing out on this like free, all natural sexiness boost that we get from nature right near ovulation. Isn't that, I mean, that, that one made me chuckle. So since your book was written, Roe v. Wade was overturned. And I'm so curious because this is a topic you're known for. I'm sure a lot of, you have some interesting discussions with a lot of people. So I'd be curious what kind of interesting discussions you've had that would be something we should highlight in this conversation. And I don't know if it would also have to do with the O-pill going on the market and getting approved by right. the FDA and that being an over-the-counter birth control. So it might be all one big conversation, but those are two massive things that have happened since your book was published and they all happen to be in less than 12 months, uh, in the past, less than past 12 months. So let's, let's talk about this. Yes. So the first thing, you know, talking about Roe v. Wade, um, I think, you know, obviously this has created this state where um, fertility regulation for women has become even more of a salient issue than it was beforehand um, because we, d we don't have an off-ramp anymore. Like it used to be that um, if women ended up um, unexpectedly pregnant, there was still an off-ramp um, in terms of being able to get a safe legal abortion um, if that was the route that a woman chose. Um, and now we don't have that off-ramp anymore. Um, it's not guaranteed anyway. So there's a lot of women who no longer have access. Um, and this has made, you know, this issue of, of fertility regulation and finding safe, effective, um, affordable contraception um, a much more salient issue for women. Um, and I think because of this, this has made the birth control conversation a lot more important. Um, because it's like women are really needing to um, understand what their options are um, and being able to know what to look out for um, and how to troubleshoot if they're on something that they don't like. Um, and, and so I think that in a lot of ways, um, the, the Roe v. Wade you know, situation has made um, education on hormones and hormonal birth control and all of these things even more um, important just because more women are having to make the hard choice of do I want to go on hormonal birth control even when I don't want to just because the cost of an unintended pregnancy for women is so high. Because um, one of the things I talk about in my book is, you know, the ability to safely and regulate our fertility as women is like our number one rights issue. I mean, it's like, 
It is the biggest predictor of our ability to um, achieve financial and economic independence for men, um, political independence for men, is the ability to pick when we have children um, and, uh, and not being able to, you know, uh, feel certain of that is a, is a scary place. And I think that, you know, with the, the Roe v. Wade thing, my, here's what my hope is with this. My hope is hormonal birth control isn't perfect for all these reasons that we've talked about, right? It's, I, I, I think that it's much better for women, um, all else being equal, to have their naturally occurring hormonal states. It's like what we are wired for. Um, and so, you know, and, and, and I talk through in my book about the different types of side effects that are possible. We need better options. You know, we need more options. If you don't do hormonal birth control and you're in a sexual relationship and you're fertile, you know, so you're not postmenopausal, um, you don't have a ton of options that are available to you to be able to be really certain that you're not going to end up pregnant. And so what my hope is, is that this political change is going to lead to greater investment in alternative strategies for regulating fertility that don't require women to totally change who they are. Which is what you do when you change a woman's right. hormones. Right. Um, so, so that's, you know, that's my hope there because it's like, you know, I, I talk to people about, you know, what are the range of effects that are possible from hormonal birth control? And then we talk about, well, what are the alternatives? It's like, okay, well, you have the copper IUD, which is great. You've got, um, you know, because that doesn't have hormones, but it, it is painful yes. and it makes women's periods more painful. Yes. Um, and, uh, so it's not ideal. You have the fertility awareness method, which I, you know, I love in theory. I don't love it for a 16 year old girl right. because most 16 year olds don't have a super regular cycles because their HPG axes are still figuring themselves out and so, stuff like Fexi and that, I mean, it's, it's good. It's not, it's like what I think 85% effective, which is okay if you're in a really, you know, consensual relationship, you know, with somebody and you end up pregnant and it's not that big of a deal, but it's 85% doesn't feel very good to me in a post-row era. And so it's like, we don't have a lot of great options. And so um, I am hoping that this makes people pissed off enough where we really start putting pressure on the people in R&D and contraception to start coming up with some better options. Right. Because I think that it, you know, the medical, you know, the drug companies and everything um, have not been investing in birth control because it's like, well, it's good enough. Right. You know? And it's crazy because I can't remember, is it $35 billion or $65 billion industry? And just imagine the innovation, especially with, with this post-Roe v. Wade era. Do you think or have you seen that because Roe v. Wade has created such media attention and so many more are talking about it, do you think that an interesting thing that will happen is more women will want to go on birth control, i.e. the ones that may be in communities where they tend to look be more in the I need men to support me type of community, right? Because they have no other way out of their challenging life. Yeah, yeah. So that's an interesting question. Yeah, you know, I don't know. Like, I, I guess ultimately, like, I don't know the answer. But I, I do think that it's, you know, because so the O pill, which we, we didn't uh, talk about. And I'll, I'll give you my thoughts on that, too. But, you know, that was made available after the Roe v. Right. Wade thing. And I think that it was like, okay, 
So we ha- have sort of put our foot on the throat of women yep. um, by removing this off-ramp that we had if, um, if things didn't go right. And so we need to sort of make things a little bit better somehow by, making, by ma- increasing access to um, birth control, which on the one hand I think is, is good, you know, right? So I think that there are some good things that can come out of this, even though on the whole I don't think that it was good. I think that the O-pill, um, having that available, and I've got such mixed feelings about this, because okay. um, uh, on, on the whole, so I'll say on the whole, I think it's good, right? Because I think that in, increased access, you know, again, like the biggest key that we have as women in our ability to um, take care of ourselves and be financially, uh, politically independent from men is the ability to regulate our fertility. Yep. And so increasing access to that magic key is like, in my view, is like, it's a good thing. But I will say that it scares me a little bit when we couple it with the fact that we have no sex education. Like women are taught nothing about their brains and the way that their brains work and the way, you know, that hormonal birth control can potentially affect them psychologically and, and physically. And it scares me to think about teenage girls whose brains are not developing, done developing yet, and whose risk, for example, of death by suicide goes up 600% when they're using hormonal birth control during adolescence. And, and the, the biggest offenders when it comes to mental health problems with hormonal birth control are progestin-only contraceptives, like the ones that are made available now. And the idea of young girls who are asymmetrically shoulder the heightened risk of depression, anxiety, and even suicidal behavior um, from using hormonal birth control, that they're using it and nobody knows about it, really terrifies me. Yeah. Um, and, and I hate it. And, and I hate it not, be, and, and, and I don't think that the answer is, let's not make it available, because I don't think that's the answer. I, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that it's available. Um, the answer is that we need to really be educating people about this yep. because if, if a girl knows here's a potential side effect of this and she can talk to her best friend or her partner or whoever um, if she doesn't want to talk to her parents and say, can you look after me and just let me know? Because, I mean, it was like you said, um, when we're going through a d- depression or anxiety, it's like our brain doesn't say, oh, I'm experiencing depression or anxiety. We just feel like, oh, my God, my life is so bad. Like things are so terrible and it's like, we don't have an, because we're experiencing it as real. Right. It's like, it feels like us. And so, um, I think it's so important to have people looking after us, um, especially these teen girls who are the ones who are most at risk of developing these kinds of side effects. Um, and so that I, I worry about that. I, I, I do, I, I worry about that. And so I'm hoping that with, you know, this, sort of availability of this, that this also, um, you know, that there's, uh, we start putting pressure on, I don't know who, you don't even know who, I don't even know who to put pressure on about educating the public about this um, and making sure that everybody knows what they should be looking out for. So that way um, we can care for those that we love. Right. You know, the research continues. Um, and I really appreciate the the fair and balanced perspective because 
you know, again, I've had guests with so many varying viewpoints and I was really wanting to connect with you to have that data-driven perspective. Not that my other guests weren't, but I, I definitely saw some strong opinions with certain um, discussions. And so I really, really appreciate um, this additional um, data point for people to consider. Anything else that we should take away um, from this fabulous conversation? Uh, no, I, I think that, um, you know, the, when it comes to hormonal birth control, I think that you know, the, the big takeaway is because the, the effects are so idiosyncratic and varied and individualized that the best thing that women can do is really educate themselves on hormones, the role of hormones in the brain and their body, um, what the range of effects are that are possible from using hormonal birth control, and then being able to make decisions about you know, what makes sense for them given their individual life goals and circumstances. Because um, the, the, what the right answer is going to be is going to differ from woman to woman. And it's also gonna differ within women depending on different life phases that they're in. And so I think that, um, that this is really, uh, and again, you know, I present the book as a way of, of providing information and not about making decisions for somebody. And so I like to think that it's a really useful guidebook in this way where it provides that information without providing um, any sort of, with, I, I don't have a stake in the, I don't have a stake in the outcome. Right, no, absolutely. And you made it fun to read as well. I loved, I loved your little uh, <laughs> quotes. I learned a, I learned a lot from the, those two, um, but thank you. And how do you want people to reach out to you and stay in touch? Good. They can follow me on social. Um, I'm uh, Sarah E. Hill, PhD. And so that's Sarah with an H. Sarah E. Hill, PhD on all social handles. Um, and you can also find me online at uh, sarahehill.com. Awesome. I'll put everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for making time. Really appreciate this. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And that wraps up another empowering session here at the FemPower Health Podcast. Now, before you dash off, I've got a quick, exciting invitation for you. Please join our vibrant community by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, because it's really your frontline update on groundbreaking women's health research, the latest health-enhancing products, fun quizzes to boost your health IQ, and unique discoveries that you won't want to miss. All of this delivered straight to your inbox, cutting through the noise of social media algorithms. Love today's insights? Show your support by rating and reviewing our podcast. Your feedback is more than just a pat on our backs here at FemPower Health. It lights the way for others seeking guidance and community in their health journey, amplifying the voices that need to be heard. And for a deeper dive into today's topics, check out the show notes and explore our website at fempower-health.com. Our site is a treasure trove of knowledge, neatly categorized by topics of interest and life stages ensuring you find exactly what you need to empower your health journey. And your voice matters to us deeply. Whether you have a question, a story to share, or feedback on our episodes, reach out directly at info at fempower-health.com, drop us a message on social media, or hit reply on any newsletter. Your insights inspire our conversations. And a quick note, the knowledge we share is here to embolden you in discussions with your healthcare provider. It's not medical advice. Always consult with your doctor for health decisions. And remember, the diverse perspectives of our guests reflect their individual journeys, and it's not an endorsement by FemPower Health. Here's to empowering your health journey one episode at a time, and I'll see you on the next FemPower Health podcast episode.